Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like expanding capacity for sustainable aviation fuel and biodiesel in Washington state and bringing massive new infrastructure online in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, it's David. I want to tell you about a special live recording of the argument that's coming up. It's happening March 9th at the Time Center in New York, and we'll be tackling two big topics. First, social dysfunction. We're going to challenge Ross, as we like to do, to defend the premise of his new book, The Decadent Society, and ask whether it even goes far enough. Then we'll talk about the presidential race. Super Tuesday will just have happened, which means it'll be a great moment to talk about the Democratic nomination and to look ahead to the general election. Ready to jump into the fray? You can buy tickets at nytimes.com slash the argument live. That's nytimes.com slash the argument live. I hope to see you there. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt. And this is The Argument. This week, we break down the New Hampshire primary and look ahead to Nevada. There's just such a, a yawning need for someone to lead, and it just boggles my mind that nobody has stepped into that breach. Then, Valentine's Day. Is it the worst holiday of the year? My feeling about holidays is that they engender stress, and yet, as human beings, we need them. And finally, a recommendation. On Tuesday night, Bernie Sanders won the New Hampshire primary, and he's now looking stronger in the polls of Nevada, which is the next contest. Joe Biden's weakness means, if anything, Sanders is now the favorite in Nevada. So we want to start with a pretty simple question. Is Bernie Sanders on a march to the nomination? Michelle, what do you think? It's hard for me to think of a scenario in which Bernie Sanders is stopped without the Democratic Party being blown up, right? I mean, he's he's obviously the front runner. He's obviously I don't know if he's the delegate leader. I think that's still Mayor Pete, but he's, you know, likely to become the delegate leader after the next couple of contests. And although it's a strange situation because it, in some ways similar to the Republican contest in 2016 in that you still have a majority of the Democratic primary electorate um, that doesn't want a candidate as left as he is. Although, you know, there's some complication with sort of projecting who people's second choices are. Nevertheless, there's obviously a big moderate block in the Democratic primary electorate. But there seems to be very little prospect of them coalescing around anyone. And if somehow Mike Bloomberg was able to swoop in and win this thing with a plurality of delegates, because I don't think there's any prospect of him getting a majority of delegates, um, I shudder to think what that convention would look like and what it would do to the party going up against Donald Trump. Michelle, I see how that could happen, meaning that Bernie just keeps winning. But I guess I'm not yet persuaded that he's that strong. I mean, you compare what he did in New Hampshire this year to what he did there four years ago. 
he beat Hillary by something like 20 percentage points four years ago, and he beat the mayor of South Bend, Indiana by basically one or two percentage points. And so I agree it's messy right now. But when you take the fact that the Democrats award delegates proportionally, so basically Bernie and Buttigieg got essentially the same number of delegates from New Hampshire this week, um, with the fact that there are a lot of Democrats who don't want Bernie to be the nominee, I I don't know what it looks like, but I can absolutely still see a scenario in which Buttigieg or Klobuchar or Bloomberg emerges by Super Tuesday or shortly thereafter as the clear alternative to Bernie and then just beats him in a series of primaries. And you have something that looks more like 2008 in which you have a close contest, as we did between Obama and Clinton in 2008. But Bernie is the close loser in that contest. And that still seems totally within the realm of possibility to me. But I guess for that to happen, I mean, if you go through each of those candidates, right, like Amy Klobuchar would would have to have some sort of huge money bomb and be able to stand up organizations in a lot of these upcoming contests extraordinarily quickly. Um, And maybe that's possible, but it's hard for me to envision. Um, Pete Buttigieg would have to dramatically increase his margin with voters of color, which, again, I think could be possible because I don't think it's clear to most people whether the fact that he's doing so badly with voters of color is about, you know, active antipathy as opposed to just kind of unfamiliarity and preferences for other people. The fact that so many black women in particular have have started moving towards Bloomberg suggests that there's just a huge hunger out there for who can win. And if it looked like that could be Buttigieg, maybe that would change. So even if he had a kind of blowout on Super Tuesday, he's still starting from this huge numerical disadvantage. Um, So I agree with you that Bernie's showing is pretty weak um, compared to in the past and and also compared to Trump's showing um, four years ago. But I just don't see a possibility for somebody else to have a a stronger showing at this point. So, I mean, I I lived through, I mean, we all lived through, but since I'm a conservative, I lived through it maybe more intensely than you guys, a version of this four years ago. Um, and where, you know, you had a leading candidate who a big part of the party didn't want to see nominated. Um, and when you added up the vote totals of the non, non-Trump non candidates, as you can do with the non-Bernie candidates, now it looked like there was a big non-Trump block that could deny him the nomination, which is why people like me kept writing columns saying Trump can be denied the nomination <laughs> – Um, well after it became clear that actually he couldn't be. Um, And I feel like part of me just takes the lesson from that experience to be – and I end up agreeing with Michelle um, in the sense that Sanders clearly has a core of support that extends – nationally, right? He competes well. He competed well in Iowa and New Hampshire, and he's going to compete well in the demographically very different confines of Nevada, and he's probably going to compete pretty well in South Carolina um, too. And that against a divided field is a pretty strong, powerful thing, especially when the people who support him are doing so so enthusiastically, right? Can I say something? I think another lesson that Democrats should draw from 2016. And I say this again as somebody who would be really, really 
thrilled with a Bernie Sanders presidency and is still pretty worried about a Bernie Sanders candidacy. Um, One of the things you saw with Trump is just that the other candidates never really attacked him. Or if they did attack him, it was sort of on places where he had been not sufficiently conservative as opposed to, you know, um, his his business failures or his, um, you know, just sort of personal grotesqueries. And this isn't an exactly analogous to Bernie Sanders. I would really like the other candidates to make a case against Bernie Sanders on the basis of the things that I think would render him most vulnerable in a general election, right? I think that they should that there should be a more robust debate about democratic socialism, um, maybe about all of these, you know, sort of like wacky leftist um, positions that he's taken in his past, you know, his endorsement of the Socialist Workers' Party candidate in the 80s, his, um, you know, service as an elector to a Trotskyite party at a time when that party was sending fraternal greetings to um, the Ayatollahs in Iran. And it could very well be that they make that case and it doesn't stick. But it would be good to know whether people already know all that stuff and how they feel about it before we get to the general election. But nobody's doing that. I think that's smart, but I think there's a limit to that too um, in the sense that you still need the not Bernie candidate <laughs> to, in a way to do it, right? That um, I, I think definitely so far there's been this weird dynamic where you the attacks on Bernie from his fellow Democrats tend to be things like he's not left-wing enough and you can tell because he accepted Joe Rogan's endorsement, these kind of things. Right. Just right. They're all attacks from the see, left. Right, which are not the way to beat – probably not the way to beat him in in the primary unless you're maybe Elizabeth Warren um, but also are not, as Michelle says, stress-testing him in any meaningful way for the general election. But But the other thing that happened was you know, in the Republican primary – at a certain point, people did start making those attacks on Trump. They waited too long. It was too late. They did it basically at like 1.5 debates and Marco Rubio got in a you know literal manhood measuring contest with Trump that was a disaster. But there were those attempts at a certain point and they still failed. You can't beat someone with an alternative that is defined by the person you're trying to beat. Or at least it's very hard. Right. But I would argue. But right. But in a certain way, they didn't fail because they basically showed that the attacks didn't work. And indeed, the attacks didn't work. Right. They failed if your goal is to stop the candidate. But that's not what I'm talking about. I'm just talking about, you know, again, seeing if they work. It reminds me in 2008, someone said to me, is Obama tough enough to to win a general election? And my attitude was, well, either he isn't and Hillary's going to crush him in the primaries or he is and, and he can win both the primaries and the general election. Right. And part of the ugliness of the 2008 um, primary was that Hillary actually did go after him on a lot of that stuff. Right. I think kind of yep. eternally damaging her reputation. But in the process, you know, showing just how tough and kind of robust Obama's support was. And so it's like, who is going to do that this time around? I mean, there's certain people who are well positioned to do it. I don't, you know, Mike Bloomberg certainly has nothing to lose by doing it. Right. But 
so far nobody nobody has. And that's your question, Ross, which is who's going to do it? Well, and and but also, I I mean, I think I disagree a little with Michelle in the sense that I think that it's it's not that Rubio and Cruz and Jeb proved that those attacks on Trump didn't work. They proved that for attacks to work on a candidate who a certain number of voters like, there has to be a clear alternative mm-hmm. to that candidate. If you're tearing someone down, there has to be a safe harbor for voters to then go to. But if you're not if you're not for Bernie, who are you rooting for right now? Well, look, I still I'm glad that I I think that we should still take seriously the fact, um, although I know this might sound um, crazy to some people, you know, the person who's coming in third in the delegate race is still Elizabeth Warren. And I understand that she's had a kind of dramatic collapse. um, But I think it makes sense for her to hang on as the Bernie alternative, at least for for a while. Um, and in some cases, it's maybe incumbent on her to make the case about why her version of kind of progressive anti-monopolistic capitalism is superior to socialism, um, both politically and, you know, substantively. You know, that said, there's something weird about what's happening with Pete, I think, because on the one he's he's doing kind of amazingly well, right? He's had this sort of astonishing rise. Yep. He has... This great backstory that you would think would be media catnip. He's the person besides Bernie who's genuinely exciting people and getting huge crowds. Um, So you would think that he would be the sort of natural person for moderates to consolidate around. Um, But he just evokes such visceral um, loathing in, I think, a lot of people in the media class in particular, and then certainly on the left, that that stops that from happening. Which brings us to Klobuchar. And I mean, I was, uh, as you both know, I've thought she had real potential in this race for a long time. And this is the first time she's actually really showed it. Um, she got roughly 20 percent in New Hampshire, which just wasn't that far behind either Sanders or Buttigieg. And yet, as I was watching her speech on Tuesday, which was a big moment for her, and she got that it was a big moment, right? She began by introducing herself to America. I was just reminded of of her real weaknesses as a presidential candidate, which is she hasn't yet gotten any of that kind of uplift, right? Her speech was sort of a, a recitation of thanks to her campaign workers. It was making this argument again about how electable she is, which feels like it really should be the subtext, but she keeps making it the text of her speech. And Lamar Alexander. Yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, Ross, you're right. I'm not answering your question because, as Michelle says, Buttigieg has issues. Um, I still don't think Klobuchar has figured out how to sound like a presidential candidate um, for all her strengths. And so I I think it's not really clear. Um, I I guess the one thing I would say is I do think we're going to learn significantly more over the next couple of weeks. So to what extent can Buttigieg actually grow his support among non-white voters in both Nevada and South Carolina? For that matter, to what extent could could Klobuchar? Um, And then if neither can, um, 
uh, we're very quickly going to get to the point where we're at Super Tuesday and Michael Bloomberg, who is on his way to second place in the national polls, um, if they don't come out of these first ones, if neither Buttigieg nor Klobuchar comes out of them looking strong, then then the Bloomberg scenario starts to get very real. Can I just say that I think there's a huge missed opportunity here for one of these candidates and maybe even for Bernie, um, but for one of them to step up as the leader of the resistance at a time when we are sliding closer and closer into full authoritarianism, where you have this total breakdown of the rule of law at the Justice Department, you know, Bill Barr and Trump nakedly um, putting their finger on the scales to so that kind of people who have broken laws for Trump can evade justice, um, you know, never mind these politically motivated investigations into Comey and to Andrew McCabe, right? I mean, we are kind of getting closer and closer to full banana republic. And with impeachment over, somebody has to take up the mantle of saving American democracy. But one way to show that you can be a leader is to lead at this moment when people are terrified and looking for somebody to do that. Um, You know, and there are a lot of ways that you can do that, but some but they can you know, use their platform. The people in the Senate can grind things to a halt until there's some kind of action. There's a lot of things that you can do. Um, and again, there's just such a, a yawning need for someone to lead and a whole bunch of people trying to show that they can lead. And it just boggles my mind that nobody has stepped into that breach. I, I, I think I think this was actually key to one of Klobuchar's effective moments at the debate where she was you know, it was sort of a prepackaged line, obviously, but she was attacking Buttigieg for doing his plague on both your houses, Washington is broken thing by citing impeachment and citing other senators and impeachment. And, you know, and then mm-hmm. she went on the riff about him preferring to watch children's cartoons. Um, and, and I think that's the way if there's a Klobuchar argument that sort of starts with the electability argument that she has and goes somewhere a little more presidential with it, it might be a version of that, of basically saying, look, I'm the most electable candidate in this race and we have to win it, you know, to defeat Trump's corruption. No, but I don't even mean that. I don't mean like because everybody I mean, I mean, I'm going to lead the fight against Bill Barr right now. But how does how does a senator lead the fight? I mean, I guess there are things a senator can do in terms of filibustering that would, I suppose, you could have a Klobuchar filibuster on an unre- unrelated. Well, look, I think you should do that at the minimum. I mean, I think they should all be doing that at the minimum. But why aren't they all out there with speeches, you know, kind of laying out the stakes, laying out what's happening, and demanding that Bill Barr resign? And, you know, if you had somebody who was just, um, you know, speaking to their fears, speaking to the urgency of the moment, maybe calling on people to come to Washington and protest, right? I mean, just I don't know exactly what it would look like. But again, we need a leader. They're running to be a leader. um, So lead. Ross, let's end on the substance of this DOJ stuff. Uh, You are often the voice of, of calm and you say, look... Uh, Trump is not ripping up democracy. Uh, he may talk about it or tweet about it, but he then ends up being stopped in the end. How alarmed are you by what's happened this week in which the president and the attorney general have both 
just really blatantly gotten involved in a case to try to keep uh, an ally of the president um, from going to jail. So my read on what's happening, which is totally provisional and could be wrong or, or overtaken by events by the time this episode airs, is that um, there is uh, that what what was done at the upper levels of DOJ in reducing the requested sentence time for Roger Stone was probably an attempt to head off Donald Trump pardoning Stone outright, um, which I don't think will reassure either you or Michelle remotely about the, <laughs> the state of this administration or American democracy, but is a li- it's a little different from Trump ordering Barr to keep Stone out of jail. I think that Barr thinks Barr buys a more modified version of the Trumpian witch hunt narrative, which is to say he thinks that the Russia investigation went too far and people abused their powers. And so he doesn't mind or is happy to sort of rein in some of the prosecutors involved. That coexists with a desire to effectively manage the president and prevent him from abusing his powers nakedly through the use of the pardon power. So I think both of those things are going on right now. Right. I just think that, Ross, you're being far too optimistic. I think that Barr is a full-on Roy Cohn consigliere to the total corruption of American justice. Because, David, I mean, David, I don't know how scared you are. I mean, I'm waking up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. I mean, it just seems like it's really all breaking down. All the guardrails are gone and nobody is there to nobody is there to save the rule of law. This does feel different to me. I mean, we know that Trump gets emboldened um, when he has reason to feel emboldened. Um, after the Mueller report was a dud, that's when the Ukraine call happened. And now that he's been acquitted, he's firing the people who testified against him in impeachment, and he's just really baldly intervening in Justice Department cases. And so I see all the kind of little cases for how it might not be maximum bad. But when you add it all up, it really does feel like the administration just doesn't buy the notion of the rule of law in ways that Obama and Bush and Clinton and on and on and on did. And um, they're now putting that into practice. And listeners, we want to hear from you. Uh, What's your answer to Michelle's question about how worried are you right now about the breakdown in the rule of law? Give us a call and let us know at 347-915-4324. And we may play you on the show. You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com matter. That's netsuite.com matter.
I use the New York Times Games app every single day. I love playing Connections. With Connections, I need to twist my brain to see the different categories. I absolutely love Spelling Bee. Sudoku is kind of my version of lifting heavy weights at the gym. When I can finish a hard puzzle without hints, I feel like the smartest person in the world. It gives me joy every single day. Start playing in the New York Times Games app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash games app. On a more uplifting note, or maybe not, Friday is Valentine's Day. Corner shops, drugstores, and school bulletin boards will be filled with cartoon hearts. And no doubt some kids will get their first taste of heartache when they don't get a card from their crush. Valentine's Day is a multi-billion dollar industry. It is also the subject of widespread ridicule on social media. So the question is, are we all too grumpy about Valentine's Day, or is it actually the worst holiday of the year? Michelle, where do you come out? I don't know if I would call it the worst holiday of the year. I would say that here are the things that irritate me about it. Um, So going back to elementary school, I remember that whole process as being intensely traumatic, like not not so much about your crush, but you give out Valentine's to all your friends and you worry about that you've gotten less than other people. Maybe they don't do that anymore. I mean, at least in my kid's school, you give them to the whole class. But I remember that as being just like an absolutely brutal social ritual. You know, I'm a romantic person, but I can't imagine going out to dinner on Valentine's Day. It's the worst day of the whole year to go out for dinner. So it's not that I have such a problem with it. You know, I like chocolate. I like flowers. It seems to me to be for a holiday about love. It's a holiday that I think engenders a unique amount of anxiety and unhappiness. My wife is also a romantic and also grouchy about Valentine's Day, and we've never really liked it. But we have this nice little solution, which is we happen to have gotten married in mid-February, only a few days after Valentine's Day, which means we can ignore Valentine's Day without feeling guilty about it and then focus our flower and gift buying uh, that same week on a different holiday, one that actually means something to us. So here's where I admit that I am a romantic, but I am like to a probably unhealthy degree sort of indifferent to ritual. My husband and I, neither of us know what our anniversary is because we lost our marriage certificate pretty quickly after we got married. And I think we could probably tell you within a few days what it is. (laughs) Um, And because we eloped, it's not like there's invitations that will tell you when it is. So we don't really celebrate our anniversary either. Well, Ross, this is the moment for you to stand athwart this podcast and tell us to stop our cynicism. And to defend love. Yes. I mean, look, I agree with Michelle about school valentines. Um, I remember that kindergarten, first grade, everybody giving each other valentines experience. And it wasn't traumatic, but it wasn't fun. And Valentine's Day, I don't think needs to be for kids. Um, It's supposed to be an adult holiday. Our kids' school has the kids make valentines for their parents, which I think is sweet, and you don't give valentines to your classmates at all. I think that's a totally sensible policy, and I support it. And then I have a lot of sympathy for the broader case that, yeah, these holidays, you know, they produce stress and unhappiness. 
But to me, that applies to every holiday in a way. And my feeling about holidays is that they engender stress. And yet, as human beings, we need them, right? And that this is true of all ritual. You know, when I take my kids to Sunday Mass, it engenders a lot of stress, but it's still worth doing. The Christmas season is overall, I would say, one of the most stressful times of year for anyone who has kids and is also in, you know, relations with multiple relatives and, and so on. And yet to remove it would be to remove this really powerful season of community and solidarity. And I mean, with Valentine's Day, you know, it can be an inspiration for things that you should do anyway. Like in this case, over the last couple holidays, I'm trying to actually put the endless family photographs that we have online or on our phones into actual photograph albums so that when civilization collapses, we will still have hard copies of all our family photos. And should I do that anyway without the spur of being able to do it as sort of like a Christmas and Valentine's gift to my wife? Sure, ideally. But having these holidays there as spurs to gestures that you should do anyway is, I think, worth overall the stress that they engender. Now, here's here's where I say something I think that is genuinely romantic, which is that I suspect the reason that I don't have any real feelings about Valentine's Day is that my husband makes a lot of those kinds of gestures unbidden throughout the year and always has, kind of unconnected to any holiday. Oh, man. And so... I do think that, like, you know... you're now See, now you're making I, me if, look bad, Michelle. <laughs> if those kind of things never happened, I might think, mm. like, yes, finally, my one time of the year. So we've... Well, then we've really hit on the classic conservative-liberal divide, right? Which is that conservatives think that institutions exist because not everyone is as awesome as your husband, basically. <laughs> and some poor women are stuck married to me instead. And we need... <laughs> These, you know, these social pressures, these cues, these structures, these guardrails to force us to do nice things. And that's – if everyone were your husband, there would be no need for such restrictions and rules. But tragically, some people are yeah, more like Nor me. would there be a mess in the Democratic primary. That's, that is also that true. That is true as well. <laughs> David, have I sold you at all on the necessity for these terrible holidays? Well, that is the more optimistic case for Valentine's Day, right? Which is it is to get the other husbands and spouses of America to behave more like Michelle's. But here's the pessimistic case, Ross, and, and you'll see why I'm going to ask this, which is, isn't the modern success of Valentine's Day a form of decadence? Uh, and for listeners who don't know at this point, Ross has a big new book coming out arguing that decadence is the great weakness of American society. It sort of feels like Valentine's Day, at least the way we actually celebrate it, is a pretty good example of modern decadence. So look, David, of course Valentine's Day is infused with decadence. But one, even under decadence, life can still be lived well. One of the virtues of decadence is that it is not yet the full dystopia and it still leaves room for people to do better than their cultural cues. And two, the core is still good and the spirit of prodding people in romantic relationships toward actual romance is a good thing. And in that sense, Yes, there's decadence everywhere. It rules everything around us. Um, but that doesn't mean we should reject the buried gold beneath the tinsel. How's that for a metaphor? That's pretty good. 
And look, even you, you two have spoken so eloquently about it that even I will wish both of you and your spouses and all of our listeners a happy Valentine's Day. Now it's time for a recommendation where we give you a suggestion of something to take your mind off the ever unfolding nightmare of the news. David, it's your turn. What do you have for us? Well, I'm going to recommend Holiday Magazine, which may seem like a strange, (laughs) may seem like a strange recommendation because it doesn't really exist anymore. But I think it's very much in keeping with the idea of taking your mind off of the news. So Holiday Magazine was this absolutely gorgeous mid-century American magazine. It had incredible photographs. It had amazing writers for it, E.B. White, Eric Ambler, and on and on and on. But what I do is I like to, a couple times a year, go online and buy an old copy of Holiday Magazine. So as you both know and as our listeners know, I went to China recently. Actually, this was a gift from my wife. She bought me an issue of Holiday Magazine from the 50s that had a feature on Beijing. And first of all, they're just not that expensive to buy these old magazines online. And second of all, they're this amazing little bit of time travel in which you get to look back and see what these places were like, but maybe even more so you get to see what Americans thought they were like back then. The ads are incredibly entertaining, the ads for cigarettes and cars and and camps, summer camps for kids. And basically, you go online, you spend a little bit of money, depending on the issue, $10, $15, $20, and you just get this wonderful form of of entertainment. Uh, and then you can throw it on your coffee table and your guests come by and look at it, too. Oh, wow. So I so I laughed because we had just had this, you know, kind of dyspeptic conversation about holidays. But you mean it was like a, a travel magazine? Yes. It's like the more European definition of holiday, right, where they use it the way we use the word vacation. Uh, I mean, I I mentioned Eric Ambler. He's probably my favorite spy writer ever. And uh, the issue of Holiday that my wife got me with an article about Beijing, I just stumbled on an article by Eric Ambler about murder in London. And so there are just all these hidden gems in it. And uh, for different reasons, I think you actually both would, would quite enjoy it. So where do you get copies? You can get them on eBay. Um... I mean, what I tend to do is I sort of Google around, you know, let's imagine that you're going to Argentina. Um, uh, just do a little Googling and try to figure out when Holiday Magazine wrote an article about Buenos Aires or Argentina. And then then you do a little bit more searching and figure out how to buy it. They make good gifts, too. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Yeah, this is a, I, I have no other comment. That's a terrific recommendation. I know – I think I've heard of Holiday, but I know almost nothing – about it. And lost mid-century magazines are fantastic. And also a reminder of a less decadent era in American history. Hint, hint. Indeed. So that's my recommendation. Go online and buy an old copy of Holiday Magazine. That's our show this week. Thanks so much for listening. If you have thoughts or ideas, leave us a voicemail at 347-915-4324. You can also email us at argument at nytimes.com. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show was produced by the all-star team of Maddie Foley, Alex Laughlin, and James T. Green for Transmitter Media and was edited by Sarah Nix. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, and Ian Prasad Philbrick. Our theme was composed by Allison Leighton Brown. We'll see you back here next week. I could have talked for another half hour about the Democrats. It's really fascinating. 
When everyone is on the same page, getting things done is easy. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Grammarly is your secure AI writing partner that enables your team to make their point and move faster. You can even save time by going from spending hours editing drafts to just seconds. Join the 96% of Grammarly users that say it helps them craft more impactful writing. Sign up and download Grammarly for free at Grammarly.com slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said. Done.